Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is from Proverbs 28, verse 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. A people are known by their proverbs, in other words, what they value and what they do not value. Where they, profe- where they profess to find wisdom and where they do not. Our modern culture hates objectivity. Countless propaganda pieces tell us that we must find truth within ourselves. And we must be true to ourselves. We must always believe in ourselves. And whatever is true and right for you is fine for you. But the word of God, which we just read, says, Whoever trusts in, him, in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. The book of Proverbs shows clearly that wisdom and folly are moral issues. It's not just a matter of intellectual IQ. The Proverbs clearly teach that the fear of the Lord is the very start of wisdom, and wisdom is clearly a gift from our gracious God. Quickly this morning, I'll touch on three attributes of the wise. They're teachable, they're diligent, and they're humble. The first characteristic of wisdom is that the wise are teachable. One of the clearest distinctions in Proverbs between the wise and the fool will be their respective attitudes towards rebuke, correction, and instruction. A fool needs it desperately and will not have it, and a wise man far less, and yet he welcomes it gladly. Second, the wise are diligent. Wisdom is a moral attitude, so it's not surprising to find that it's connected to things like work, just as folly is to laziness. Proverbs 6.6, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider his ways and be wise. Wise men are producers. Fools have their identity as consumers. What matters to them is what they can buy, what they can wear, and how they and their family look to others that are watching. And the third, the wise are humble, but the fool is self-important. Like the Proverbs today highlights, only the fool trusts himself. They would be terrified to humble themselves and entrust their thoughts to the wisdom and input from someone who might be able to clear the fog away from their self-absorbed thoughts and wishes. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. I invite you to deal with your honor if you're willing to do it. There are a lot of products on the market today which are designed to imitate the real thing. You can buy plastic decking that looks like real wood or vinyl flooring that looks like ceramic tile. You can buy fake fur and costume jewelry. And now there's spray-on mud, which is designed to be used on the outside of your SUV. Uh, If you're a city driver for just $15 a can, you can buy artificial mud to spray on the back of your car so that your friends and neighbors will think that you've just returned from a wilderness adventure, I guess. (laughs) Sales are going well, that's all I know. Evidently, $15 a can seems a reasonable price to pay for the appearance of authenticity. When it comes to spiritual things, 
There are many forms of imitation Christianity that we can try to pass off as the real thing. We find ourselves in a world of split living where we go to church and worship God on Sundays, but then comes Monday and people switch off the religious side and pursue their work, their relationships, their recreation, as though these were matters completely separate from their Christian commitment. How do we Christians engage in particular behaviors that seem okay until someone or some event points out that maybe we need to examine what we've been doing? How do we respond when someone points out the inconsistencies that are there? As you and I mature in our Christian faith, we're called to evaluate our actions and to evaluate our motives and to bring them under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As we look at this portion of Peter's letter, we find that the Word of God plays an all-important role in maturing us in the faith. And Peter's epistle points out that God's Word causes us to grow in two specific areas. First of all, God's Word matures us for a life of ever-deepening love. First Peter was a circular letter that was sent to Christians living in the northwest part of Asia Minor, which now is the country of Turkey. These Christians were mostly Gentile converts who had come to Christ through the ministry of the very first missionaries. Peter acknowledges the sincere love that they have for one another, that they've developed for one another. And in verse 22, he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers... That's that opening clause. He's saying that they have, they have developed to the point where this sincere love has been demonstrated toward one another. So how did that sincere love come about? It began with their hearing the word of God. In verse 23 it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That's the theme of our text today, the pure, living, and lasting, enduring Word of God. And once these people in Turkey heard the Word of God and came to faith in Christ, they they went on to obey the truth of the Word of God. And as they did that, Peter says in verse 22, that they purified their souls. And as their souls were transformed and made into the image of Christ... Then, and that took place on the inside, then the words and the actions that flowed out of their souls were characterized by sincere love for others, literally unhypocritical love for others. But now there comes a new command from Peter. He says, now that you have purified yourselves from, by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. So our love must deepen. Our salvation doesn't stop once we're born again. We must also grow. We're not to reach a certain point in our Christian walk and then coast. Peter says, you've been loving each other sincerely without hypocrisy. That's great. Now take the next step and love each other even more. Deeply. From the heart. The word deeply means intensely. uh, Stretched. So our love for one another is now to be stretched and to become more intense and deeper. 
In fact, we know here in Peter that he's using two different words for the word love here. In verse 22, he says, you have been loving each other sincerely. And the word he uses is the Greek word phileo, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's that brotherly love. It's that fellowship kind of love. It's a friendship love. It's a companionship kind of love. But now the next step is to love deeply from the heart, he says. And Peter changes to a new word for love, and now he uses the word agape. And agape, agapao, means self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That's very different than companionship love. Now we're moving beyond just getting along and having fellowship with each other. Now we're talking about leaving our comfort zone and loving others when it's inconvenient, when it costs us something, when it calls for making sacrifices. Peter is saying, okay, the Lord has enabled you to learn to pray for others. Now reach out and initiate contact, a relationship with that person. He's saying, okay, you've, you've grown in your knowledge of the word of God through Bible study. Now adopt a single mom and her kids and come alongside of her and make a difference and bear her burdens with her. You've learned how to send cards to those who appear on the prayer list uh, or those who've lost a loved one when it's announced. Now reach out and adopt a widow and come alongside her in her transition and in her loneliness. The same truth of God that gave us spiritual birth also nourishes and stretches us. God's word matures us for a life of ever-deepening love. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by that milk you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. All Peter is saying here is, you know how necessary milk is for a baby's growth. In fact, the need for milk is a natural instinct for a baby. It signals the desire for nourishment that will lead to growth. In the same way, God's word is absolutely necessary for any Christian spiritual growth. It's our necessary food to mature in the faith. And as Christians, we need to see our need for God's word and to turn to it to find that nourishment in Christ. When he uses the word pure spiritual milk, what does he mean by the word pure? Well, back in his day, people were well aware of merchants who watered down their milk or their wine in order to stretch their profit. The same kind of thing happens today. The word pure was a business term of the first century, which referred to pure, unadulterated products, nothing added. And so Peter is commending a spiritual milk that is free from additives. He's saying the word of God can be depended upon to provide pure, trustworthy guidance so that we can grow and mature in our faith. How do we deepen our love in practical terms? The Bible says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's as we turn to the living word of God that we find our pattern of love to follow. I'm not talking about merely reading the Bible. That's the starting point. But taking the time to allow the Spirit to plant the truths of God's word deep into our hearts and minds as we read, as we memorize, as we meditate and reflect on it, as we pray about it. And as we open the Bible and study it, 
we find the example of Jesus' selfless love given over and over again. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. And the word for love is the same word, agape. He says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Some years ago, I took my 17-year-old son, Stephen, over to the Luge Run in Muskegon. Have any of you been down the Luge Run there? No takers yet, huh? It's still in existence. It was started by uh, a young man who received a bronze medal at the Olympics. So he came back and got the funding to build it, and it's become a luge center right there uh, on Lake Michigan. So for $50, you can get a lesson and then spend an hour or two on the run. And it's quite a sophisticated run. I mean, it looks as nice as something you'd see on television. And it has the timing so you can know exactly down to the, I don't know, one thousandth of a second how fast uh, you're going. So we got there late in usual style and missed most of the lesson. So we had an abbreviated version. And, uh, and then we got in line. And uh, I have to say, it's something altogether different to stand there in the line with your helmet on and holding your luge and getting into the starting gate and going down the run from watching it on television. I was terrified. People disappeared into tunnels and the walls of ice were not forgiving when someone bumped against them. The instructor had said, try not to hit the edge, because once you start, you ricochet, and there's no stopping it for the rest of the run. I asked him if people ever flipped their illusion, and he said, oh, sure. Once I flipped over, and a few seconds later, I flipped back again, so I was right side up, and continued right on down the run. So you're going down on your back, looking up. Unless you're going sideways, then you're looking at the ice. Do you know what gave me the courage to overcome my fears and climb into the starting gate? Well, to tell the truth, there was a woman in her late 70s who was just in front of me. <laughs> and I was humiliated into going. I, I could not figure out how someone at that age would want to do this. But I watched her disappear into that first set of tunnels, and then a few minutes later she appeared on the steps to get in line again. You know, there's something about a living testimony that gives us courage. And we all need courage to step out in faith and take the risk of loving people at a deeper level, being stretched. But once we see someone else emerging from life's tunnels, we realize we too can do the same. Jesus is our living testimony of how to love others more deeply. That's why the Bible refers to him as the pioneer of our faith. He's not only our pattern and our model, he's our pioneer, our hero. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. He showed us the way. He loved us with all of our sin, with all of our offensiveness, with all of our total disinterest in the things of God, holding back nothing and laying down his very life for us, going to the cross. If you want to grow up in your salvation and love others at a deeper and more intense level, then I would urge you to consider three commands that the Bible gives us. Romans 15:7 says, Accept one another, just as in Christ. God has accepted you. 
So the idea is to love others the same way Christ has already loved us. So first of all, it's to accept others. And how has Christ accepted us? Unconditionally. He looks past all that's offensive, and he loves us. Second, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving one another just as in Christ God forgave you. So that means we're to be quick to forgive others, not to hold grudges, but rather to keep short accounts with people, to do when we've been wronged what Jesus told us to do, to remove the log from our own eye, to go in humility, to speak the truth in love. But then when asked to forgive, to go ahead and follow the example of Jesus. Third, we're called to serve one another. You remember when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in John 13. And then afterwards he said to them, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So we're to be asking ourselves each day, Lord, who are you wanting me to serve? God's word calls us to a life of ever-deepening love. Are you allowing God's word to stretch your love for others, to deepen it? He's calling us to new levels of acceptance and forgiveness and serving to others. That's all the fundamental part of growing up in our salvation. Well, the second area we're to grow and mature in is that God's word matures us for a life of increasing integrity. Integrity. Peter broadens the command to grow up in our salvation in verse uh, uh, 1 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. The truth of God's word must transform not only the way we love each other, but it is to transform every aspect of our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. So to clear away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander can be summed up in one word. As Christians, we're to strive to become people of ever-increasing integrity. What is integrity? The word means wholeness. We think of the integer numbers. The integers are the whole numbers. And the idea is that the outside is in agreement with the inside. There's a consistency that's there. The root word means intact or uncompromised. One of my favorite Peanuts cartoons has Lucy telling Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole world. And Charlie Brown says, I thought you had inner peace. Lucy thinks about that for a moment and then she says, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. To have integrity is to have consistency between our inner thoughts and our outward actions, our outward speech. You remember that Jesus said that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. There's a direct link. For Christians, to be a person of integrity means being true to God's standards, both in public and in private. A person of integrity is completely consistent with his or her stated convictions. Arthur Miller, in his play, The Crucible, said integrity is a bigger thing than telling the truth. It's about being a certain kind of person. It's about being people who know who we are and what we are. And it's about being true to what we are, even when it could cost us more than we should like to pay. 
Your life is to be untarnished, free from anything that spreads corrupting influences. And that's why Paul's famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13 says that love rejoices in the truth. Agape love has nothing to conceal, so it is glad when the truth prevails. Love is brave enough to face the truth. So how does God, in his word, make us brave enough to face the truth? How does feeding on the spiritual milk of God's word make us rejoice in the truth and face it head on? Well, God's word reminds us over and over again of his standards for holiness and keeps them constantly before us as we go throughout our day. As was said earlier in the service, in a world that really is compromised, our idea of what the truth is, it all becomes relative. But God says, no, I have very objective definitions of what truth is, of what love is, of what sacrifice is, of what faith is, of what being a disciple is, about what it means to be a husband or wife, to be a child, to be a student. And so it keeps... Also, as we spend time in in God's word, it keeps our spirit soft and pliable so that we remain open when others confront our hypocritical actions. Donald Sloat wrote a wonderful book called The Dangers of Growing Up in a Christian Home. And he relates the question of our hypocrisy to the area of raising children. He writes, how do we maintain an air of authority when our children are asking questions and raising issues that make us look dead wrong and as hypocritical as the Pharisees. Years ago, Will Rogers gave this excellent advice. He said, live so that you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. What can Christian parents do when the inconsistencies that were safely tucked away out of sight are suddenly thrust into plain view. Does that ring any familiar bells? Last year I was back at our cottage on Lake Huron over in Canada again. And uh, that's where we would spend all of our summer vacations. And I was reminded of an event many years ago uh, when my son David began reading. Suddenly signs and posted rules took on a whole new meaning. And in our, in our family, uh, that was a big change. I remember making a weekly trash run to dispose of the garbage that we had accumulated. You see, the trash trucks came at 6.30 in the morning where we live. And it's, it's an early hour when you're on vacation. And uh, we couldn't set the bags out the nights before because the animals would rip everything up. And I wasn't really keen on battling the mosquitoes in the early morning before the sun was up all the way and uh, uh, getting eaten alive as I took the trash to the bottom of the hill. That wasn't what vacation was about for me. So over the years, I took our trash to various locations and pitched it on the slide, so to speak, next to restaurants, but then they ended up putting in these fancy dumpsters with locks. And so I ended up at the local provincial park, sort of like our state parks, except you didn't need a pass to get in. And uh, uh, or, or I would go to roadside parks that had a few picnic tables and some isolated trash cans all nicely out of view from the main road. But as we drove in then to this little uh, roadside park, uh, David began reading the signs, uh, and specifically one next to the trash can where I pulled up. And he said in his best reading voice, only park trash permitted in cans. Well, what could I do? 
say, yes, I see the sign, and maintain that I was somehow above the law. I kept driving through the park, but every set of cans had the same sign posted next to it. By this time, I could really begin to smell the trash inside the car, and my younger children were starting to fuss, and I was getting desperate. Finally, the last set of cans came, and there was no sign. So I quickly and rather sheepishly got out and deposited it. What do we do when our inconsistencies that were safely tucked out of sight are suddenly thrust into plain view? When our child or our spouse or someone at work or even a friend may point something out, anyone who has the courage, the courage to confront us, for the Bible says we're to speak the truth in love. I'm using the example of a child, but you can broaden it to fit your situation. Donald Sloat says that there are four possible responses. First, we can ignore the discrepancy and pretend that it is not there. But that doesn't change the reality of the problem. Our children see us lacking honesty and courage, and their response then is to lose respect for us because of our hypocrisy. The second option is to fake it. We can pretend that we believe something when in reality we're unsure or don't really care. The American Heart Association had its annual meeting in Atlanta uh, some time back, and over 300,000 doctors, nurses, and researchers attended. And one of the main topics of the conference was the importance of a low-fat diet and keeping the heart healthy. But during mealtimes, they ate fast food and high-fat food at about the same rate as people from the other conferences. One of the cardiologists was asked whether or not eating like that set a bad example. And he replied, not me, because I took my name tag off. Don't we say the same thing? On Sunday, we can say prayer is important, or reading the Bible is essential, or loving and serving the unlovable is key. But our children pick up on any of our attempts to fake values, to fake our behaviors that we don't genuinely believe, because they observe what is important to us as we live out our lives Monday through Saturday. A third option is to use warnings and reprimands to compensate for our inconsistencies. You know, to say to them, do as I say, not as I do. At least there's a partial acknowledgement there uh, that what we're doing isn't maybe the best. The best option is the fourth one. And it's the most difficult one. It's to follow the words of our text and rid ourselves of all hypocrisy and deceit. If our lives are going to be open examples of God's truth, we have to face our hypocritical behaviors, our hypocritical attitudes, openly and honestly, and call them what God calls them, which is sin. Even if it means being embarrassed because we've been caught unawares. As Sloan points out, our children know the truth about us anyway, and instead of losing respect, we will gain more of their respect when we admit that we are wrong and don't have everything figured out. So often when our children spot an area of hypocrisy in us, the first response we usually have is to justify ourselves or to defend our authority. We're fearful of losing it, and yet the most important thing to do is to show our children that we too are under authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. And we too are called to submit every area of our lives to his authority. And as we obey the truth, the truth of God's word, and submit to it, we grow and mature in our faith. 
and we show our children how to do the same. John Miller wrote an article where he talked about having dinner with his friend John. And as they were talking, John noticed that Don had a new cell phone, and he asked him about it. And Don said, actually, I got it for free. John said, well, how'd you get it for free? He said, well, my old phone broke last week, and so I took it to see if I could replace it. They had a new computer system at the store, and it was giving them problems, so they didn't uh, have access to their records. The service rep asked me if the phone was still under warranty. I knew that it wasn't, because it was more than a year old. I told them I didn't know. It was right around a year. And that was a little white lie. But they replaced it with a newer model, so I got a free phone. John said, are you telling me that you're willing to sell your integrity for the cost of a cell phone? The next day, Don went back to the phone store and returned the new cell phone. He bought a cheaper one with fewer features. But he got his integrity back. You know, no one can ever take your integrity from you. You have to give it up. Well, back to Canada. The next week, when Trash Day rolled around again, I had to make a decision. Was I going to continue in my disobedience of the park ordinance? Was I, or was I going to do it on the sly? Go out by myself this time so I wouldn't have to answer any pesty questions or be held accountable by someone. Isn't it true that we often don't want to give up a particular sin? So we figure out ways to do it in secret. We have our list of secret sins, don't we? David even mentions them in the Psalms. He says, forgive my secret sins. And yet Peter says, rid yourself of all deceit and hypocrisy. The way we get rid of those secret sins is by learning to seek out the pure spiritual milk of God's word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Was I going to get up early and carry the trash down the driveway, fight the mosquitoes, so that I could regain my integrity with God and my family? Would I submit yet another area of my life to the word of God? Well, if I'm honest, I have to tell you, I was not exactly singing in the doxology as I slept the bags down the driveway during the early morning hours. But I did have an increased awareness of what Jesus meant when he said, I came that you might have life abundant, life to the full. There's a quiet joy in having a clear conscience before the Lord and being able to look your children in the eye after doing the right thing. No price is too high to pay to have a free conscience before God. Have I arrived? Hardly. We're all prone to hypocrisy. Probably the hardest area for me is driving and waiting in line. Each day brings new opportunities, if we're open to them, to allow God's word to confront us, to stretch us, to mold us into the people he wants us to be. You know, you cannot live on yesterday's integrity. Integrity is now. 
It is an ongoing process, and we have to live it every single day of our lives. To grow up in our salvation is to commit ourselves to love others more deeply from the heart and to rid ourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, to become a person of greater integrity. In short, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's our calling. And we start by planting the good seed of God's word in our lives. His pattern for love and integrity is to be planted there every day as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you know us for who we are and that in spite of that you love us, you forgive us, you continue to pour out your spirit upon us and you give us opportunities each day to learn to do the right thing. Thank you that it's never too late to start doing the right thing. Thank you that as we ask for your help, you give us insight and strength and resolve beyond that which we normally would have within ourselves. May we, Lord, become people of ever-increasing love and integrity to glorify you, to point others to Jesus Christ. We continue now in the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Christ's crucifixion, the first recorded instance of Christians having the Lord's Supper together was at the time of Pentecost. Read in Acts chapter 2. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Pentecost is a time of joy and of liberty. Joyfulness and freedom is also fitting for our celebration of Christ's resurrection resurrections today as it is every Lord's Day. And our participation is a proclamation of Christ's death. His death means dominion, not freedom from sin, but dominion over the consequences of sin. We proclaim his death, not with sad funeral looks, but seated on a royal high dais, a a raised platform, at the presence of the one who is conquering everything. We began our service called the confession, but we partake of this meal for our nourishment. We participate together as a congregation with solemn thanksgiving and earnest joy. Each Sunday we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We invite all to the Lord's table who are are baptized and are under the authority of Christ's body, his church. And by eating the bread and drinking the bread together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God. We acknowledge that we are in covenant with God and also with the congregation which, is, which embraces the triune God through word and sacrament. Come to Christ's table. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.